you have your Bibles with you today, I invite your attention to Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah 65. We are continuing a series that we've called Restore. And today, as we think about these prophecies of Isaiah uh, and how real they are to our lives and our world and the impact that they would have on revival as God begins to restore certain things, we've talked about how God, when He begins a fresh new work in our lives, He restores our faith, He restores our joy, He restores an emphasis in prayer. And in all of these things, we begin to see some uniqueness about how these people were living in anticipation of a Messiah to come, and we live in anticipation of Jesus coming again. And so we live much like they by faith. And today, I want us to look at perspective that God gives to His people, and I want you to see God's perspective of His people. So I invite your attention to Isaiah 65, and I would ask that you would stand in honor of the reading of His Word. Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 1. Here's the Word of the Lord. The Lord says, I was ready to respond, but no one asked for help. I was ready to be found, but no one was looking for me. I said... Here I am, here I am, to a nation that did not call on my name. All day long I opened my arms to a rebellious people, but they follow their own evil paths and their own crooked schemes. All day long they insult me to my face by worshiping idols in their sacred gardens. They burn incense on pagan altars. At night they go out among the graves worshiping the dead. They eat the flesh of pigs and make stews with other forbidden foods. Yet they say to each other, don't come too close or you will defile me. I am holier than you. These people are a stench in my nostrils, an acrid smell that never goes away. Look, my decree is written out in front of me. I will not stand silent. I will repay them in full. Yes, I will repay them both for their own sins and for those of their ancestors, says the Lord. For they also burned incense on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will pay them back in full, but I will not destroy them all, says the Lord. For just as good grapes are found among a cluster of bad ones, and someone will say, don't throw them all away, some of those grapes are good. For So I do not destroy all Israel, for I still have true servants there. I will preserve a remnant of the people of Israel and of Judah to possess my land. Those I choose will inherit it, and my servants will live there. Let's pray together. Father, to this end, would you give to us understanding and application of your word, that we might have fresh perspective of who you are and what you desire for us and from us, to your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning, in your worship guide, I asked a very interesting question. It's an important question. How do you see God? That's a very important question. When you close your eyes to pray, what is the image that comes to mind? Maybe it's just blackness. Maybe you see God as a God who is in a galaxy far, far away. Maybe you see God as a judge or as a police officer. Maybe you see him as Santa Claus or as the Easter Bunny. Maybe you see him as a genie in a bottle. Maybe you see him as loving. Perhaps you see him as cruel. Maybe you see him as absent. 
Or maybe this morning, if you're honest, you came into this place and you said, I see God as non-existent. God is whatever you want to make of your decision to, to believe in a deity, but I just don't believe. All kinds of people have all kinds of mindset about God. Is he powerless to help us or is he all-powerful and sovereign? Is he included in our daily affairs or did he wind everything up and like this old grandfatherly type, simply let the world spin like a top and play out? Well, how you see God is critically important. In fact, today we're going to learn some things not just about how we should see God, but I'm hoping that you will see how God sees you. And in doing so, it will shed new light on His grace and on His mercy. It will begin to help you see some interesting things. Well, I looked and, and did some study, and some time ago, I've asked this question a lot. There's all kinds of funny statements about what kids say about God. Well, there was a book written, and it was illustrated by children. Uh, and the author put these things together by asking that simple question. How do you see God? What is He like what does he look like? How does he act? What does he do? And the book is titled, OMG, How Children See God. Let me give you just a few of the, the samples that were there. Angel, she's a five-year-old, said, God is a superhero for the world. So her perspective was pretty positive. She was excited about God's power and his ability, and she related him to a superpower, superhero. Ethan, age eight. God doesn't have a house just because he doesn't need one, except on Sundays because that's when he needs to rest. That's what Ethan, his perspective of God. Nine-year-old Kelly said this, God doesn't sleep because he watches over us all the time. Picture of God smiling and happy and watching over all the people all over the world. How about Remy? Remy is seven years old and said this, God is inside of every living thing, so my doctor has seen God when he cuts people open. I kind of liked that one. I thought that was sort of interesting perspective that Remy would see God from the inside. Well, Jonathan, a 12-year-old, he drew a forest and answered by saying simply, God lives here. Interesting that there are theological connotations to all of these answers. I mean, what you believe about God is shaped by the people that are around you. I'm sure their parents had influence over it. And maybe, just maybe, his dad, and I, I'm not reading into that, maybe his dad says, well, we, we can worship out on the lake, or we can worship out in the deer stand, or we can worship out in nature. And there are a lot of people that just see God in that context and maybe nowhere else. So as you think about this question, I don't want this to be removed to their answers. I really want you to engage this morning and ask of yourself, how do I see God? Let me give you a couple more. I like this one. God has giant ears so he can hear everything that we're saying. I love your picture. And by the way, you can't read it at the bottom. She's a nine-year-old, but appropriately, her name is Gabby. So I would think it would be appropriate that Gabby would say, God has big ears and likes to listen. Let me give you one more. Manny, a six-year-old, said this, My mom talks to God when we need money. I, I did what you did. I kind of chuckled at first and said, that's cute. And then I stopped and I said, what theological concept is there? When I'm in trouble, when I'm in need, I turn to God. And that's a good thing, but is that the only time we turn? I'm reminded just of one more story before we really begin to dive into our text of a little boy who was feverishly coloring at his preschool. And he was coloring away and so much so that it drew the attention of his teacher. And his teacher came and said to him, Johnny, what are you drawing? He said, I'm drawing a picture of God. 
And she was fascinated by that. And she said, well, Johnny, nobody's ever seen God, so we don't know what he looks like. And he said, they will when I'm through. <laughs> I like the confidence in little Johnny. Maybe you have a clear picture of God in your mind and in your heart. But I would bet for most of you, it's a little more fuzzy than Johnny's picture. You struggle to get a real concept of who God is. And there are times when life doesn't seem to make sense and you face struggle and you begin to say, that's tainting my picture of who I thought God is. I, I thought God should have come through this way and he didn't. I should have uh, surely seen God work by now and I haven't. And so God's not really the clear picture of who I thought he was. But it is a critical matter. A.W. Tozer said it this way, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so for you and for me, for just a, a few minutes as we look at our text, I hope that we'll gain some insight into what God is like and who he is and what he thinks about you and me. Let's look to the text again, verse 1. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here I am. Here I am. As you think about that, these are people with busy lives. What do we learn about them? Well, he speaks to this group of people. He says they're not looking for me, they're not seeking. So let me give you some thoughts. Number one, they're not looking for God. Number two, this is a group of people that are not seeking after God. And you say, well, isn't that the same thing? I, I, I say this just in a developmental way out of the text. They have no real awareness or no real concern for God. So that's the idea of looking for Him. But they're certainly not seeking after Him. They're not driving toward Him and saying, what should we in our lives be thinking toward God? Do we owe Him a response? Is there a God that is sovereign over us? And there are a lot of people around you that live this way. They're not looking for God. You have neighbors in your homeowners association. You have co-workers that work with you and classmates, students that you go to school with every single day that are not interested in the things of God. They're not looking for Him. They're not seeking Him. And I would bet that there are people in this room that perhaps fit this place. And so we're going to look at what God sees. They're not expecting anything out of God or from God in their lives. They're self-sufficient in their own lives. They, they see no need for God. They haven't been praying to God. And again, this all comes from the text. He, he said to a people who weren't looking for me, weren't seeking, who had not called out to me. So he's saying people that aren't praying, not expecting, they did not ask for God or seek Him. I would define them this way. These are secular people who do not know God. These are secular people who do not know God. And again, you know folks like this, and they may be very incredibly polite. They would say, I respect your faith. I, I respect your convictions. I appreciate your devotion to your church and to God, but I, I'm just really not interested. My life is fairly full. My life is pretty content. I don't have the time or the desire, not the inclination or the interest. You know anybody like that? They're just not seeking God. Again, maybe it's describing people here, and you say, but I'm in church. Well, I, I realize that. But, you know, there are a lot of people that come to church for a lot of different reasons. Maybe you're here out of a sense of guilt. Maybe you're here out of a sense of curiosity. Maybe today you came into this place because your parents made you come. Or a spouse or a, a parent or someone else kind of pushed in that direction and said, you know, I really think you ought to be here. 
Well, they are secular people that don't know God that God is speaking to in Isaiah 65, 1. And it's a pretty remarkable thing to think about. Well, let's put it in context. In Isaiah's time, these were the Gentiles. If you recall and remember, God revealed himself to a man named Abraham. And he revealed himself and said, I'm going to set apart your descendants as a unique people. And I'll reveal myself to them. And I'll give them my promises, my laws, my covenant. I will walk with them and dwell with them. And the other people didn't have that. The Gentiles did not have the promises and the covenant. They did not know God. And so that's what we're talking about. People that just don't know. They're on the outside. So this first group are secular people that don't know God. And across our country today, in our city today, there are literally tens of thousands of people just like that in our city. And there are literally millions of people like that in our world. In fact, billions that don't know God. And many of them would identify that way. I, I'm just sort of none. When they come to the census, they would say, I, I just don't really have much interest there. Well, let me ask you a simple question. What do you think God would say to a group of people like that? People that have ignored him and not sought after him and not looked for him and not prayed to him. I mean, he created them. He designed them. He longed for a relationship and a purpose. What do you think God would say? Well, that goes back to your impressions of who God is. Some of you might very well think, you know what, God's going to say this. They have no interest in me. I have no interest in them. They're not coming to me. I'm not going to them. Well, I want us to walk a little further, see another group, and then we'll come back to God's actual response to these people. And as we do, I think it'll give you, as I've said, a renewed perspective, a, a different picture of God. Let's look on a little bit farther. These are secular people who don't know God, but there's a second group. Look in verse 2 with me. All day long, I open, in fact, it's on the screen, read it with me. All day long, I open my arms to a rebellious people, but they follow their own evil paths and their own crooked schemes. In fact, I'm going to put it in a different translation. Let's read it again. All day long, I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good. The idea is very, very illustrative. In the Hebrew language, God is standing with arms held and extended wide open with his hands toward this rebellious, obstinate people. They walk in their own crooked paths. They turn away from his way. You say, well, Scott, this is just two verses. Is this not the same group of people? No, not at all. It's a different group. And the reason that we know this is very, very simple. If you will, hold your place there and flip over to Romans chapter 10. In Romans 10, the Apostle Paul quotes this passage, and he tells us that God's speaking to two different people. This is one of those places where you'll learn uh, maybe a little more uh, about the Bible if you'll follow along with me. Look in Romans 10, verse 20. Romans 10, 20. And later, Isaiah spoke boldly for God, saying, I was found by people who were not looking for me. I showed myself to those who were not asking for me. And look at verse 21. But regarding Israel, God said, all day long, all day long my arms are open to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. 
So Isaiah 65, 1 is talking about secular people who do not know God. Isaiah 65, 2 is talking about God's own gathered people. He's talking about a group of people that, that are provoking God. That's a dangerous place to be. Wouldn't you agree? I just get the image of that family that are in the mountains and dad wants to get a picture with his kids and with the mama bear or with the cute little bear cubs. And he always pushes them out there and I just start watching going, this is not going to end well. It's not going to end I think I'll get in my car. They're getting out of their car. This is not a good thing. Don't poke the mama bear. Don't mess with it. And here, these people who are obstinate and walking in their own ways are walking in ways that are so dangerous because they're not provoking a mama bear, they're provoking God. And as we look at this text together, maybe you'll begin to see some places in your own life where this fits. I certainly did as I studied it, as I looked at it. But let me give you a definition. These are religious people who claim to know God. All right, The very first group, what I say about them, they were secular people who do not know God. And these are religious people that, help me out, say it. They claim to know God. Does that mean all of them are saved? Not necessarily. Does that mean all of them know God? Not necessarily. They claim to know God, and yet their lives begin to show something different. And regardless of whether you've always been in church, or maybe you're coming back to church to, today for the first time, or you've recently come back, this could describe you. Maybe you claim to know God. You're religious. Maybe you were brought up with religion. And you look back on what you learned and you think it was a good thing. And you're thankful for it. Some of you had a religious background that was not so good. Maybe you, you felt it was oppressive and you felt beat down by it. And as soon as you were old enough, you got away from it. And, and religion was a struggle. And I think at some point in your life, you, you, if you were in that camp, you just felt glad to be freed of it. But there was still a hunger. There was still a longing. Notice what God's saying to this group of religious people who claim to know him. All day long I've held out my hands to this obstinate people, to this group of people who provoke me. He, he's talking to people that are religious. And I think there's something healthy for us to gain here. When we begin to learn that not all religion that's sincere is good. Just because something is religious and somebody's sincere in it, people can be sincerely wrong. And they can approach God in wrong ways. And religion is not the answer. A relationship obviously is. And I believe here God is pointing out through Isaiah that religion is sort of a, a hodgepodge of good and evil. That there are some good things that can be drawn from it, but there's also some things that will derail us. Some religion honors the Lord and some religion provokes the Lord. Some of it, it comes nowhere close to pleasing him. It actually provokes him. So some of you, hopefully, that are tracking along would ask the million-dollar question. Pastor, what kind of religion offends God? I'd like to know that. And Isaiah spells it out for us. And so we're going to walk just for the next couple of minutes through some forms of religion. In fact, he gives us six that I think we need to see. And as we look at these, maybe you'll begin to look and it'll be like a mirror and you see into your own soul, your own life, as you consider what kind of religion is good and honoring and what practices can be distinguished from that. The bad ones that would provoke the Lord and offend Him. In verse 2, I want you to see this. The very first kind is what I would call hypocritical religion. They were obstinate people who walk in ways not good. These are religious folks that 
that talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. They, they say one thing, but they go a different way. They, they Basically, they claim to know God, but they don't walk after Him. They don't follow Him. And God says, that offends me. That provokes me. I, I want you to hear this. How many of you have ever been offended by somebody that, walked the, uh, that talked the talk, but walked a different walk? You've been offended by a hypocrite. You saw some hypocrite, and you said, well, I don't want anything to do with that. Well, let me tell you, you're on good ground if you're there because God agrees with you. God does not like hypocritical religion. He doesn't want people that will serve him with lip service and not life service. God wants us to obey him and to walk after him. And here he says, I'm holding my arms out, but these are obstinate people who walk in ways that are wrong. So hypocritical religion. Secondly, I want you to see this, self-serving religion. It comes straight out of that text. It says they pursue their own imaginations. Following your own imagination means that you just assume God is for whatever you're for. And that God is in whatever you're in. And it's remaking God in your image. And we've spent a lot of time talking about this in modern circles. Whether it's styles of worship or the the focus of how a church functions. And people have turned religion into a set of preferences for themselves. In fact, I, I, I don't want to poke the bear this morning, but as we think about worship, a friend of mine sent me an incredible quote this week. He's a pastor, and he was kind of battling through it, and some of his members said, well, I think we ought to sing this, and I think we ought to do that, and I think we ought to go this way, and he wrote this in his journal, and he shared it with me, and it gripped my heart. He said these words, real worship does not connect us to a treasured memory because we love the song or the style of song. True worship connects us to the one true God in that moment, not because we love the song, but because we love the Savior. That rocked my world. Because there are so many times I say, well, I wish we'd sing this way or that way. I wish we would use this instrument or that instrument, or I wish we would do it that way. And I stop and say, God is provoked when I make worship about me. I'll never forget hearing Francis Chan when he was pastoring Cornerstone Church. A visitor came to his church and on the way out the door looked him in the eye and said, I didn't really enjoy worship today. And what would you respond to that? I mean, most of us would, well, you would want to appease, I'm so sorry. Francis Chan looked at him when this visitor said, I really didn't enjoy worship today. He said, that's okay, we weren't worshiping you. Hello. Self-serving religion is so dangerous because it provokes God. God said, I'm holding my arms out to people that have acted that way. Aren't you glad that God didn't say enough? I'm washing my hands. I'm thankful that Isaiah 65.3 didn't say, I'm done. (laughs) But it doesn't. He says, I held my hands out to those who have been hypocritical in their religion, self-serving. Number three, let me give you this one, empty or ritualistic. Verse 3 says they offer sacrifices in their gardens and burn incense on altars of brick. It's all about religion and ritual. You might expect that God would be pleased with that. They are consistently going back and doing these things. But the problem is it was empty. The problem is they aren't seeking the heart of God. They're seeking some way to appease God by their ritual. And, And isn't it easy for us to do that? If you're honest with yourself, have you ever gotten in a rut of worship? The relentless return to the Sabbath. It just seems like every other day we're going back to church. And, and, and you just go out of the habit. You just go out of the motion. And you stand up and you sit down and you sing. And you know how to play the game and how to do the drill. 
but your heart's far from it. Maybe your mind's off somewhere else. And God says, that provokes me. God's desire is that we would give him full attention. We would give him full adoration. That we would give him our very best. And when we worship in ways that are hypocritical, we say one thing and do another. When we worship in ways that are so self-absorbed, and when we worship in ways that are just empty ritual, all of that offends or provokes God. Number next. I would call it evil religion or dark religion. This is kind of strange. He says, but they sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil. They're, they're worshiping the dead. One commentator called this evil religion. It's a brand of religion that takes interest in the dead. I, I would call this spiritualism, if you will. Spiritualism. And we get so caught up in horoscopes and Ouija boards and all kinds of occultic kinds of things at times. And some of you say, Pastor, that's crazy. But, but we're intrigued by it. We'll go to the movies and pay money to watch paranormal stuff. And my encouragement would be this. I'm not going, by the way. When I say we, I mean you because I'm not going to those movies, okay? I just don't like to be scared that way. But remember this. The Apostle Paul said that these words are directed to Israel. He's talking about God's people. And it's kind of interesting to me to think that, that God prohibits this sort of thing, and he says it offends them, and yet they would follow after. The next one, very quickly, rebellious religion. It says in verse 4 that they eat the flesh of pigs who, and, and pots hold broth of unclean meat. They made stew of other forbidden foods. This doesn't apply to us in the same unique way in that God has not given us dietary restriction. He lifted those, but he gave his people in that day very pointed direction. And the principle is this. When God tells you to do something and you don't do it, it's sin. Or when God tells you not to do something and you do it, either way, vice versa. Where, whether it is omission or commission, we are to follow after God. But when we, in a stiff-necked way, say, I'm not doing what God tells me to do. Many of us do that almost on a daily basis. And so I don't want you to get this mindset that this is just a, a trapping of the Old Testament. No, there's application for you and for me. Are you worshiping in ways that provoke God? That's a strange question that we could actually come to Him and do things that would displease Him. So God speaks to a secular group of people who don't know God. He speaks to a religious group of people who claim to know him, and it gets worse. Look at this last one, arrogant religion. They say literally in verse 5, keep away, don't come near me, I am too sacred for you, or I'm holier than you. This is where holier than thou comes from. And the unbelievable sense of pride that's here, if your religion makes you proud, if it makes you feel morally superior to somebody else, the people that you work with and go to school with and live beside, then your religion provokes God. It ought to humble us, not make us puffed up. It ought to lead us to a place where we would recognize that, that God alone is worthy of worship. The gospel has the exact opposite effect. I read a quote by Charles Spurgeon this week. He said, as others glorify themselves, I find myself laying at the foot of the cross in amazement that I'm saved at all. I just have nothing to offer, but mercy has covered me. And I cry out and say, God, thank you. But if I'm arrogant in my religion and I look down my nose at my neighbors because I take the moral high ground and look down upon all the rest, then I've missed it and it offends God. 
Why am I taking time to walk all through these things? Well, number one, Scripture did. But number two, I think if we're going to experience revival, we need to be open and honest with ourselves about the kind of worship that we're engaging in. And we also need a renewed perspective of the heart of God. So that comes to the place of how does God respond to these people? What does he do? I want you to see very, very focused things about it. By the way, I I do need to say this about those six things. Religion is a great, great way to hide from God. I want to challenge some of you here today. Some of you are glad to be a part of this church. You're glad to be connected to other people. But religion, even in an evangelical church like this one, can be a safe place to hide from God. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. God knows those are hiding from Him in His church. It's possible to get involved in a church and completely miss Jesus Christ. How tragic. A few years ago, the North American Mission Board had a a plan to go into communities and share the gospel. And we we flew across the country to a little town called Chalice, Idaho. There's 1,100 people in the zip code. And we went to every single house, and we knocked on the doors. And, and there's some long-standing religion. There's not an evangelical church in the place. Well, there there is one that has been planted there. Uh, but in the past, there was only one other church. And I don't care to mention the denomination it doesn't matter but as we would share Jesus with people door after door people say well I I belong to and they mentioned that church that's why that's great but tell me about your relationship with Jesus well I'm not really that interested in talking to you about that I belong to that church I'm good and there's a whole world of people that believe that that they've signed a card or walked an aisle or been through some religious practice and there's no relationship to Jesus and they're hiding in churches and they may not even be attending the churches that they're hiding in but their membership alone is there and my statement to you today is for all of us are we living in a way that would reflect Matthew 15 where Jesus said this these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me don't hide from God in church so you have secular people who do not know God religious people who claim to know God let me give you three really really quick points of how God sees both number one God seeks out people who don't know him God seeks out people who don't know him That's right out of the text again. I revealed myself to them. I was found by those who didn't seek me. To a nation that did not call my name, I said, here am I. God said, I'll show you who I am. You're not looking for me, but I'm looking for you. He reveals himself. He puts himself on the radar screen of people all around you. And sometimes he uses me and you to do that. In this secular world, the people that live next to you that don't know God are longing for some example of the revealed God from heaven, and you and I are called His body, and so we have that obligation and that privilege. Here's what it means for us. You may not have been interested in God, but that does not mean He's not interested in you. You may not today be reaching out to God, but He's reaching out to you. You today may not be looking for God. You can come to know Him today because He is looking to restore you today. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came seeking and saving. God seeks out those who don't know Him. Number two, God sorts out people who claim to know Him. This gets a little stickier. God seeks out people that don't know him, but he sorts out people who claim it. 
Jesus calls out people that profess faith and don't possess faith. That, that again is what the Lord's saying. If we were to move on through our text, the, the idea of the cluster of grapes with the good and the bad, they're all lumped together, and yet there is a remnant. There are some that truly worship the Lord, truly follow after God, and he sorts them out. Billy Graham said some 50 years ago that the greatest mission field in America is sitting in the pews of our churches on Sunday morning. He, he ventured to guess that up to half of all the people sitting in churches are not saved. They're not going to heaven. They don't know the Lord. And our motivation is never guilt. It's never fear. My desire is not to stand and beat the pulpit and froth at the mouth and scream that people are going to hell. My desire is to show you the goodness and the grace and the mercy of a loving God who would say to you even though you weren't interested I am even though you weren't seeking I am even though you weren't looking I'm looking for you and today if you came into this place an amazing thing could happen God is seeking after you and he would love to meet with you right where you are but make no mistake one day God will sort out all those who claim to know him and the Bible says that many will say in that day didn't we do all these great and wonderful religious things and he says Depart from me. I never knew you. For us, he seeks out those who don't know him. He sorts out those who claim to know him. And number three, he saves all people who trust him. Jesus perfectly carries out the will of the Father and the seeking and the saving. And here's what I want you to hear out of everything we've said this morning. Here's what God is saying to Hardy Street through Isaiah. God seeks out people who don't know him, sorting out people who claim to know him. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you start out today as secular and don't know him or religious who claim to know him. All of us need the saving intervention of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us. And Paul talks about that in Romans 3 where he said Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. There is none righteous. No, not one. But he also says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does God say to people that provoke him? He says this very pointedly. Not I disassociate myself from you. Not that I'll kick you out and cast you into hell. He says this. You don't know me, but I know you, and I'm seeking you, and I long to have a relationship with you. And today may very well be the appointed day of homecoming for somebody in this place. Revival will come to our church and to our families and to our city and our lives when we have a God awakening. And if you have come into this place, maybe it was because of abusive religion, or maybe it was because of a bad home life. And your picture of God is that he is playing a giant game of whack-a-mole and he's just waiting for you to mess up so he can hit you on the head. Maybe you need to realize that God is not ready to hit you on the head. But the wrath of his judgment did strike a blow through the hands and the feet of his son Jesus. As he was nailed to a cross to atone for our sins. But he rose victoriously. God seeks after people that don't know him. He sorts out people that claim to know him. But he'll save any and all who will trust him. Would you trust the Lord Jesus Christ this day? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity for us to seek you in revival. God, as we picture Jesus on the cross, I hear the words of Isaiah, 
All day long I've held out my hands to an obstinate people. Lord, that's what you did for us on the cross. You held your arms in such a way, bearing the sin and the shame of all of our unrighteousness. That's the God of the Bible. And Lord, forgive us when we have mischaracterized you and when we have worshipped other things by religious practices that offend you. God, today, would you help us to get that right? You're seeking us. You're speaking to hearts today. God, if there's someone here that does not know you, I pray that they would cry out to you and be saved. God, if there are those who claim to know you and are walking only in religion, they would experience relationship. God, if there are those who truly do know you but have fallen into the trap of religion, they would confess and forsake that offensive way and they would walk, even run, back to you. Lord, thank you for our time and your word. Have your way as your people respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing together just a a time of response. If you need to pray with someone, staff members are here. They'd love to pray with you. Other encouragers will be down here at the front. If you need to start a relationship with Jesus Christ, they'll take God's word and show you how you too can be saved, how you can have eternal life. Maybe you need to unite with this church by uh, moving your membership here. We would love to, to receive you in that way. And you can talk to one of our staff members about that. God doesn't want to ruin your life. He wants to redeem it. He doesn't want to hurt you or harm you. He wants to help you. And that loving God that we see the picture of in Isaiah reaches out with arms open wide saying, come to me and I'll save you. Trust me. You respond as we sing. One more question that goes beyond what's your picture of God. Think through this one. Where were you when God found you? You think of how he ran to you and how he lined up the circumstances of your life to meet with you. And let that be a catalyst for worship in your life this week. Look back and say, God, I wasn't looking for you. I wasn't thinking about you. And you met my deepest needs. You came after me. What a joy it is to think about that God because that is the